0: yes guys what's good you're tuned into mango masala Pi radio south asian show my name is Gerns, i'm here with helima and simran
1: hello Hi, everyone
0: and i just wanted to start off today's episode again by just digging into something that simran revealed to me shortly before we started this call we're recording this on the evening of thursday the 9th of november Simran has told me that she has not left her house since last Friday evening.
2: Oh my God! Wait, if it's because of work, Simran, I, I'm actually gonna send some. I'm gonna make up something. I'm gonna make up a rumor and send it to your employer and forcefully get you fired because you can't. <laughs> Are you for real? Is it for work?
3: Even over the weekend. I had the best weekend ever because it was my first weekend in like two and a half months that I was able to do nothing but if I had known what this week was going to look like I would have done something but the weekend I'm not gonna lie the weekend was very nice it was very welcome but I knew this week was going to be crazy I had no idea it was going to be this crazy to
0: be fair I didn't know that you meant that you'd had a weekend of doing nothing so I suppose that that in itself oh I wasn't
3: working on the weekend no
0: okay But still, five days of work. It's
3: it's been, like, very early mornings because it's been, like, calls with, like, people in Asia. And then it's been very late evenings because of calls with America. And then... um, Why are you so busy right now? Is it an event? Five events in four weeks?
0: Yeah, it's a lot. Um, Do you actually go to these events?
3: No, because these are, like... They don't fly me out to the international ones. I'm not going to rag on my employer too much on national radio, though. Fair enough. I'm grateful for my job. (laughs) But the point is, right, and I spoke about this and I spoke about this today is that imposter syndrome is so real and I feel like for people who are just starting out in their career particularly women particularly women of color imposter syndrome is so real and overperforming to prove your worth is the kind of consequence of that and I think that's what I've done this year Mm. and I think that is it comes from like being held to the highest standard of having to work a bit harder to kind of attain the same results as someone who might have had more privilege or might have had a different upbringing to you growing up
2: it's just white all that let's so just how it is like it's white privilege isn't it
3: but like there's so but I think there's also a lot of different factors that go into it as well because there's also like ability neurodiversity there's so many different like you know life events that can happen that affect your ability to perform when you need to perform like in in an exam or something I think like so many things go into it beyond race as well and gender but I just think it's a byproduct of being told that you have to achieve certain things career or education wise to be considered of value as a person and I also think that like our since like the rise of Andrew Tate I'm scared to say his name on this show but since the rise of Andrew Tate like all this like being a high value human being and attracting people has just gone into people's heads so far and I also have internalized that to an extent as well I think can I just say as well
0: like I was gonna say like he who must not be named and I've realized how much he actually looks like Voldemort he does she actually does
3: did you see the the guy that dressed up as andrew tate for halloween and he was like doing like queer dances and stuff and everyone was like andrew slay no (laughs) (laughs) it was really funny anyway um yeah i just want to say imposter syndrome is real if you're going through it i'm with you and you don't have to prove your worth to anyone because you're great and i should take my own advice and don't burn yourself out because at the end of the day the work is always going to be there your health is not always going to be there and you need to put that first. So go leave your house. Get out of your house. Don't sit in the house for five days.
0: Simran, you've been giving great advice on this show for the past three years and you never never take it it yourself.
3: Yeah.
2: I can't personally relate. I'm not going to lie. This imposter syndrome, I don't know her, never felt her. Literally, listen, I think as a Bengali Muslim woman, whose ancestors got paid zero reparations. The Indian subcontinent to this day is owed trillions in reparations. 400 years of pillaging my homeland, I got paid nothing. Now I've got, got to come and suffer in the corporate imperial core. Do you think for a second that I'm gonna feel bad about rinsing anyone for anything? I have such entitlement over everything i i believe that i'm i'm entitled i'm owed everything
0: fair enough you know that you've posted on your story Lima like little miss ready to ruin the vibes by bringing colonialism into every <laughs> single conversation
2: <laughs> no but that's genuinely for me that is what it is like i just i i just i the way i see it is like they owe me i don't owe them they owe me that is also the advice that i give to all my female friends especially women of color they, they you don't owe them they owe you
0: Well, to give a bit of an outline as to how this episode is going to go, for the first half or so of it, we're going to be covering the ongoing situation in Palestine. In the latter half of the show, we've got two guests. We've got Nasha, who is a poet, and she's going to be talking about her new book, The Shadow of My Ancestral Tree. And then we've also got Daniel Omar as well, and he is going to be talking about his latest single, Honest. So, to get into the ongoing situation in Palestine, obviously we've just been talking about um, intersectional feminism, about what Halima is owed as a, or Simran as brown women living in the diaspora. Um, But we always say on the show about how the patriarchy um, negatively impacts men as well. And now with that in mind, the first thing I wanted to talk about this week is a conversation that I've been seeing come up quite a bit recently, which is about how we've been treating the ongoing situation in Palestine in regards to how we refer to casualties and deaths. Um, I think a lot of the um, statements which are put out, including by us as well, obviously we make reference to women and children that have been unjustly killed. And it doesn't take away from the fact that that is um, unjust killing and the fact that children, especially, who have barely even lived their lives are having them taken away. We're aware that obviously half the population of Gaza is um, children as well. What's going on there is an atrocity. However, we really need to make sure that we're also not forgetting the men in Palestine as well and that we're not making it out that their lives are any less important um purely because they're not seen as quote unquote innocent if that makes
2: sense it's a very typical kind of like uh like war rhetoric when we talk specifically about like women and children because they are seen to be more kind of vulnerable um generally, I guess, obviously, when we think of like soldiers, we think of men, and then when we think of like, vulnerable people who are maybe a little bit more defenseless, we think of women and children. And it's true that perhaps women and children maybe might, might you know, often need a, you know an extra level of like, um, care or protection. But I think, with specific reference to what's going on in Palestine, um, that kind of rhetoric doesn't necessarily work in this instance. Um, because what we are seeing is so kind of like harrowing. Um, And we're seeing men go through a very specific experience as well where typical war narratives don't really apply here the reason why people kind of ha- shy away from humanizing or sympathizing or victimizing even men in the same way is because uh, kind of the the binary of like men are bad and women are good or like men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed um and obviously of course there are gendered experiences within Within this kind of genocide, um, but ultimately it is kind of like universally against all Palestinians. We spoke before about how it's not just Muslims; it's you know Palestinian Jews, Palestinians, Christians, Palestinian atheists, and in this in this in this instance as well, it is men and women who are equally facing the wrath of the Israeli war machine. And when I talk about a specific experience that Palestinian men are going through, um, you know, it's it's men that are being slandered. And it's because of, like, Islamophobia and racism and the way that Arab men have been presented in Western discourse for decades. But those are the same men who are literally pulling people, um, including children. And as, and I point to children because I feel like that's just, like, r- particularly harrowing when it's kids. But they're the same people that are pulling people out the, out the rubble, essentially. You know, their kind of resilience that we've seen at large, but especially of Palestinian men, is, like... For most of us just completely un- unimaginable and <clears throat> I think what's really interesting is that it talks to this idea of like a perfect victim right um, so where kind of typical gender discourse posits men as like the oppressors and women as the oppressed um, it's very hard for people to kind of rework those ideas of victimhood in their head to so, so that they can see the men as the victims um, it's exactly in the same way that um like for example people are people fail to see like armed resistance as coming from a place of oppression because that's not what a perfect victim looks like which i do want to talk about much later on but um yeah i I think we need to be really mindful um of how we speak about kind of the experiences of the palestinian men um and also like you know shed Certain gender ideas and and discourses, so that we can show like you know just complete um unreserved sympathy,
3: I think it just goes down to like and we've spoken about it before, but like the aesthetic and the visual representation of what uh, someone that's oppressed looks like and like what the enemy looks like, and a lot of the time, I think it's easier to paint that as a man or male presenting person because it's that kind of image of what you might consider a soldier or someone that would um, rebel against a regime, right? So I feel like to paint the victims as women and children in particular kind of offers them that, like, sanctity and kind of gives them that victimhood, which is easy to pass off. But then kind of forgetting about the men is kind of adds more into that like notion of, like, vilifying them further.
0: And just as well, I, I think, like, Halima, do you want to maybe unpack just... I know we could be talking about this for ages, but just unpack in terms of like what it is that um, the West in particular has in terms of these depictions of Muslim men from the Middle East in particular, like what that depiction is.
2: Oh, gosh, this is literally take me like three hours. I mean, if you live under a rock, guys, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, who have not seen any news coverage of any, you know, Muslim or Muslim man, um... <clears throat> Muslim men are literally, I mean, they're, Arab Muslim men are presented to be like just terrorists, you know, and we see that literally with every single like um, Muslim person who goes on to talk about the issue. The first question they are always asked is, do you condemn Hamas? You know, like there have been literal like political cartoons that have come out to satire this this phenomenon that we're seeing on Western media is because that's kind of the implicit understanding. That's the implicit kind of Western stereotype of Muslim men, that they are terrorists or that they're violent and, and they're thugs. And you know, um Muslim men are often presented to be kind of sexual aggressors and just just literally every negative male stereotype that you can think of is very, you know, um, <clears throat> indiscriminately applied to to muslim men as a stereotype
0: Do you know what's interesting as well in um, the latest israeli propaganda that i've seen i don't know if you've seen it but it's like a video of like two people basically pretending to be woke liberals at an american oh university. the college
2: campus yeah <laughs>
0: yeah and that video in it's itself is yeah incredibly homophobic yeah it's kind of making pointing fun at the idea that um people who are lgbtq plus would not fare well in middle eastern countries in islamic regime and it's like that's what they're making fun of but at the same time it's like the what you're actually doing in that for example taking um the mickey out of um the acronyms and the way that they're acting as well like it's
2: a complete mockery i mean
0: that video it just managed to tick off so many offensive things like it's quite it crazy it like... was literally
2: tweeted by the state of israel like the actual official yeah. tip we've spoken before about how ridiculous the state of israel's like twitter account is but they literally like retweeted that not only does it make a mockery out of the people who um they're trying to call on their side, Um, but it's also like very, like sociologically inaccurate, like um, Israel particularly has this, they've used this tactic of like pinkwashing to try and make um, Israel, you know, kind of seem like this um, uh, uh, LGBTQ haven in the Middle East, which is typically kind of known for um, like queer phobia of all kinds. and it's just like factually not correct. Like um, there are multiple instances of of like you know queerphobia or queerphobic attacks throughout Israel um and also like i've heard from palestinians like queer palestinians on the ground that the way we kind of imagine this arab muslim community to be as being you know repressive and backwards and narrow-minded is actually not the case like i've seen so many queer palestinian muslims come forward and be like hey i'm an out queer palestinian muslim this is how i live my life you know and like i'm accepted by these people so to kind of draw those binaries between you know kind of use like you know um phobia to draw this binary between like oh Israel good and, and Palestine bad because of their respective levels of like acceptance to to the LGBTQ community is, is a little bit like it's just inaccurate. In this case, I've seen people kind of from the LGBT community come forward and be like, oh, well, you know, why should I care about a community and a people who, you know, if I step foot there, they would hang me or they'd stone me, which are just very barbaric ideals of what like Muslim communities are, firstly. Um, but secondly, um, I mean, if you step foot there, you'd probably get bombed and die. Not gonna lie, like, <laughs> there's not, there's literal queer Palestinian Muslims right now who are, who are, um, who are victim to this to this genocide like are they do you not consider your them your community like if, if that's if that's how it works
3: that doesn't absolve them of humanity just because the country's law doesn't respect their like sexuality or their sexual preferences exactly. that the people that reside there agree with those laws mm-hmm. and would also enact on them yeah. and then also don't value them as a human and are also not suffering as human beings mm-hmm. themselves completely separate from those um
2: they make the laws the laws
3: yeah. you can't you can't sit there and say like oh i you know, why should I care? Because if I went there, they would hang me for being a part of the LGBTQ community because that doesn't affect the people that are on the ground and suffering.
2: If personal subjectivity is what informs whether or not you, you know, care about something, what about the queer Palestinians then? You know, like they exist and they're also victims of this genocide. So
3: I do feel like something that I have seen a resurgence of with what's been going on is. I feel like it stopped for a bit and now it's back is this whole like I don't get involved in politics I'm apolitical and maybe it's because of like the fact that a lot of like businesses and corporations have had to like take a stand on this or what have you and then like it's all the like but do you condemn Hamas stuff that's been going on that maybe people are just trying to stay apolitical and not pick a side sort of thing but I feel like I've seen a massive resurgence in like people choosing to scroll past and choosing not to even learn about it forget forget post about it or take to the streets even to sit and learn about why this is happening in the first place
0: I mean all of that comes from a position of privilege doesn't it
3: oh my god 100% and like while I'm still of the opinion that like you know I'll do my mental health thing and say like you have to take some time for yourself because you can't look after and care for anyone else before you've cared for yourself and looked after your needs it's difficult to look to open social media and see harrowing videos day in day out like I get it like I do understand but obviously you have to kind of put it in perspective I think sometimes and it's not always about like oh but someone has it worse your problems are invalid that's not true but Choosing to stay apolitical and stuff like this does irk me. And I was, I just, I've was—I i just noticed that it's come back. I feel like we haven't had that for a while with a lot of issues. And it's definitely come back. And I think that's because of how mainstream is the wrong word. But for lack of a better word, I'll use it in terms of like piece, pe- people's like places of work having to make statements. And then all this like do you condemn Hamas stuff. Like I feel like people are genuinely choosing not to read up on the history, to scroll past and to actively not form their own opinion
2: i don't think it's that it's come back i think it has always been the case but i think people are only mm-hmm. noticing it now because it's muslim victims at any point post 9-11 this would this would always have gotten the same response and which is why it has because obviously this is a 75 year old history and people you know mainstream media has not even cared about it till now where there has been you know a large um israeli uh, civilian casualty Um, so I would say like I completely agree like people are definitely choosing to be apolitical and out of a place of privilege but I would say it's down to two main reasons number one just like um, Islamophobia or like a general kind of uh, lack of care for Muslim lives Um, and number two I would say it's because people are very afraid of the charge of anti-Semitism because we spoke about in the last episode because uh, um, kind of Zionists and Israelis have largely weaponized the accusation of anti-Zionism to silence criticism for the Israeli state, um, which we see time and time and time again, even throughout this entire discourse, people were not able to like, I'll even say from our own perspective, when we did the first episode on Palestine, we were so careful that we, more careful than we might have been on other polarizing topics, but we were so careful to to not let there be any doubt on whether we kind of, you know, were excusing what had happened to the Israeli civilians, or that you know we 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 were so careful to make sure that we, nothing we said could have been misconstrued as being anti-Semitic, um because that is the charge that is being weaponized against a lot of people who are, as I say, speaking out against the Israeli state, um and and to that I would just say like okay suck it up like <laughs> just suck it up like if you know what you're saying is right and you're not saying it from a place of anti-Semitism and you're saying it from a place of like genuine care for human rights still speak man like before we move on i want to talk about the idea of perfect victimhood so to talk further a little bit on the idea of like the perfect victim um we this is something i've always always been very privy to it's something that we touched on um when we spoke about the shamima Begum case on this show um because it's this idea of who is allowed to be a victim um because obviously she the, the the kind of details of the shimima Begum case were that she is like a bangladeshi uh, british muslim girl who who kind of ran away to join isis but actually when you look at the details of the case it was that she was groomed and then she was kind of you know exploited and abused while when she had run away um and i remember kind of there's a lot of discourse going around like if this was for example a white-skinned you know, Russian girl who'd run away to go join the mafia, um, and then she was, like, sexually abused and, and, and kind of, you know, lost her citizenship and was not allowed to come back to her own country, would the narrative still be the same? And, you know, kind of what we really came to understand was that it's because Shamima Begum doesn't get the luxury of victimhood because... Um, because she doesn't look like the perfect victim i.e she's a brown muslim woman and it's exactly the same case here when we talk about the palestinians for example like what looks like the perfect victim um so we have spoken i want to speak a little bit about like the concept of like armed resistance and i'm gonna not give my own judgment or my own opinions i'm just gonna kind of present an objective contemplation here so the people are saying or people are vilifying the palestinians um for kind of um non-violent so for violent resistance for armed resistance right saying that oh they should be protesting peacefully or they should be trying political avenues and all of these things and uh, we have spoken on the show before about how uh, Palestinians um, campaigned for political avenues um, for 40 years before you know an organization like Hamas for example or any other militant group actually came into uh, into existence and even then even then people are saying like oh they should that should just never have happened they shouldn't be allowed to do that and for me I question in earnest um how much of that criticism comes from a place of Islamophobia and a disregard for Palestinian life. Um why for example are Israelis allowed to because you know when we see when we watch mainstream news the kind of narrative is that oh Israel is allowed to defend itself, right? No one I've not seen any mainstream news outlet come forward to say we condemn what Israel are doing. Every single kind of line of conversation I've seen is that Israel is allowed to defend itself. For example, when we saw um, the coverage of the Ukrainian resistance, Again, the same argument, Ukrainians are allowed to resist themselves. Not only are they allowed to, 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 to defend and resist, they're also aided in that through billions and billions of dollars in military aid, right? So that's a fact of matter. And also when we talk about Israel is allowed to defend itself and the Ukraine is allowed to defend itself, what we're talking about is political violence, right? We're not talking about like they're allowed to go and enter a room and have a conversation with the leader of the other side. We're talking about they are armed to the teeth Right, through military aid from the West, so that they can go and engage in political violence and physically repress the other side. That is an established kind of fact in Western political discourse that these these guys they're allowed to do it. My question to you now is and I'm not speaking about any specific organization, I'm just talking just about the just on the idea of armed resistance in general. Why are Palestinians not allowed to defend themselves? through armed resistance. If we talk about this kind of, what I find really frustrating when I listen to this conversation is that people start the story from the 7th of October, right? In any kind of um, back and forth war or attack or conflict, whatever you want to call it, um, there's always a point of origin. There's always an originary attack and in, in kind of warfare language, we call that the offense, right? And the side that retaliates, that's called defense. In this situation, the originary point of attack came from Israel. They were they were in the offensive position, right? Israel were the ones that kind of blockaded Gaza and the West Bank and did the, you know, they're the ones that have the illegal settlements, they're the ones that have penned 2.2 million Gazans into an open-air prison. The originary strike came from Israel, right? So when you're talking about oh, israel allowed to defend themselves but they were the original strike the offense came from them the question is why are palestinians not allowed to defend themselves right and more importantly why are they not allowed to to uh, employ an armed resistance to do so you know we have spoken on this show and anyone can go out there it is very very well documented um the kind of scale of settler violence documented by the likes of the UN and Amnesty International, so like globally governing authorities, they have very, very like thoroughly documented the scale and the extent of settler violence. And by settler violence, I don't just mean like, oh, they're calling your names. I'm talking about like literal bombings, murders, people are being maimed, people are being injured. That's what Palestinians have been going through for the past 75 years. So at this point now, if they want to employ an armed resistance, why are they not afforded that luxury? Because they are doing it in a a defence, regardless of what you think and whose side you fall on. That is just simply a fact of the matter, because the 75 years of occupation and what that meant and the violence of the occupation are a fact. They have been factually established. Right. So at this point now, what the question is, why are Palestinians not allowed an armed resistance? If, 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 if you are deluding to believe that Israel are the ones defending themselves and they're allowed to do it through an armed resistance. And then you actually look at the facts and see, oh, no, they were their offensive strike and Israel and Palestinians are the ones defending themselves you know, and, and to talk kind of, again, more broadly on the ideology of political violence and armed resistance, um, people have this kind of like, um, fa- false moral posturing and this idea of like, there's this false pretentiousness and this false righteousness towards this concept of political violence when it comes to certain demographics, right? Um, but actually the truth is political violence is very, very embedded into liberation historiography Throughout the entire world, when we fought the Nazis, what do you think we were doing? Like, do you think we were just meeting them on the battlefield and like having a verbal dialogue with them? Absolutely not. We were we were shooting them down. We were bombing them. We were maiming, killing. Like that. That's 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 what that was. But we believe it was for the right cause, and therefore it was necessary, right? Every single independence movement in the world where we stand on the other side of it now And we say that should have happened that country needed to be free. I absolutely lord their, you know um, Their liberation effort. How do you think they got their freedom? It was through armed resistance It was through political violence even even like for example um, I, I wrote a, a story about this and I use like the example of like, you know, the Avengers who you know, which are the, the A film, one of the most popular and most lucrative film franchises in the world. I'd be pressed to find someone who hasn't seen a single Avenger film. Every single film follows the same formula: it's the good guys and it's the bad guys. And what do they do? They engage in political violence. We're we're not watching that, thinking like, "Oh my God, oh the you know the Avengers are so bad; they shouldn't be doing that. They should be peacefully campaigning." No, we sit there and we think, "Yeah, okay, it's for a good cause. It's necessary. You know, they're fighting an evil." Literally, like, when we're young, I'm trying to think of, like, the Power Rangers, for example. That's how far back this goes, you know? Like, literally from, from, from the point at which you're able to conceptualise any morality, we, we, are, we have been taught to conceptualise morality through this prism of political violence. Literally, something as, like, childish as the Power Rangers. What are they doing? They're beating the bad guys they're physically beating the bad guys, you know, so for people to act like this i this concept of political violence is so deeply offensive to them when it's the Palestinians, but when it's you know the Allied powers against the Nazis and when it's you know um the South African powers against you know the apartheid powers, when it's the Avengers against um what's the guy called man bloody. Thanos, right? When it's the when it's the Avengers against Thanos, when it's the Power Rangers against whoever the villain they're fighting, you know, in those instances, when they're fighting an evil force, they're allowed to engage in political violence. We see that literally when we're children. That that's what we're watching. But when there's and and I saw like um People have started to have this conversation. I've been seeing like, you know, when we watch like the Hunger Games, for example, again, a very, another very, very popular movie franchise. We side with, with, with the resistance, right? We, we side with Katniss and, and all of that. But then when it's like in real life and we're seeing a real life resistance and they're employing um, political violence, which, by the way, they didn't choose that for themselves. The violence was brought to them it reminds me of a really really like poignant in- interview with angela davis who for those who don't know is a really like prominent black rights activist and she did an interview where she was asked about violence and her and her response was that she finds it kind of ridiculous that she's asked about violence you know she she's like why are you asking me about violence when this is what i've seen in my lifetime i've seen that people get shot and killed and and and, and just you know indiscriminately like Murdered and oppressed by the U.S. state, from the very first African slave that was kidnapped from Africa and brought to the New World, violence was it was something that you guys took us to. So how dare you now ask us about violence? You know, and it's exactly the same thing. You know, the Israeli state are, are, are the ones that brought violence into this when they decided to be a settler colonial state when they decided on a system of apartheid. So for the Palestinians to now respond in kind, why are they held to a very different standard? That's my little contemplation for everybody at home. And and that's not to say that the, the actual violence, you know, is, is made any more palatable just because you kind of can make space for the legitimacy of political violence. But I'm just saying when we're watching this and we're all feeling a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, Um, we're hearing about the civilians that were killed by the Israelis. And and, so we're hearing about the Israeli civilians that were killed and and it should make us feel uncomfortable because every human life that's lost is a tragedy. Um, But then when you think of it in the political context, you have to understand that firstly, it didn't start on the 7th of October and that the Palestinians were not the one that brought violence into this. And secondly, if violence is being enacted upon them, why are they not allowed to respond in kind?
0: Well... Like I said, we're recording this on Thursday, the 9th of November, um, and literally at the time which this is going out, um, there should be a um, march ongoing um, in support um, for the Palestinian people taking place in London. And those of you that are British will very likely know that it's also um, Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, on the 11th of November. Um, now, it's a very, I want to say happy coincidence, just very ironic that it so happened that Remembrance Day has fallen on upon a Saturday this year, which is, of course, the day that a lot of these protests have been taking part on. So from the moment that I figured that was going to coincide, immediately I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. I'm sure you've seen in the last couple of weeks there's been a lot of press coverage about the idea of whether people should be protesting on Remembrance Day, which is meant to kind of be a kind of quiet day of contemplation about those that um, lost their lives whilst fighting for this country. And um, that's the general argument against protesting um, on this day. And. Um, in regards to the latest development as of the 9th of November, um, the Metropolitan Police Force of London has asked um, organisers to consider postponing demonstrations on Saturday. Very politely asked them to do that. Whereas certain members of the Conservative Party in particular have been quite vocal about their thinking that people should not be protesting on this day. Um, and this is not a day to be disrupted in any way um. so much to the extent that Swilla Braverman who obviously is Home Secretary um, who has continuously labelled Palestinian protests as hate marches has gone and written an article for the Times claiming that right-wing protesters are rightly met with a stern response by the police whilst pro-Palestinian mobs are largely ignored This article was not cleared by Downing Street, yet Rishi has said that he still has full confidence in Suella, in her ability as Home Secretary. And when I saw that, my first thinking was that I found it hilarious, because the police, in regards to these anti-protest laws that the Conservative Party have been trying to bring in over the past couple of years, they are effectively the means by which the Conservative Party is able to restrict people in regards to their ability to protest and i just i find it just hilarious that suela braverman as someone that has spoken very highly of the police and their rights to do whatever in the past now the second that they're not doing what is her prerogative suddenly she's disappointed in them and she is going and writing a fully not even condoned by um, Downing Street article um, having a go at the police about all this. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak has told the Metropolitan Police Chief that they're going to be held accountable for the decision to not ban Palestine March on the 11th of November. And he's also said that Saturday's planned pro-Palestine March is not just disrespectful, but offends our heartfelt gratitude. To Ugh, the nation's war dead, we will remain true to our principles. So he's basically saying that whilst it's this take this march taking place on the eleventh of November is disrespectful, he does understand that it's these rights of peaceful protest that apparently um people who've died for this country have died for. It's one of those values. So he says that the the march should be able to go ahead.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, at least he has a little bit of sense in that regard, because that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, Armistice Day is to commemorate those who died fighting in... Was it World War II or both the World Wars?
0: Nowadays, it's anyone that's died fighting for um, Britain, but it yeah. started World War One because the 11th of November in 1918 is when World War One ended.
2: In the context where Britain are fighting an evil force there are a lot of political violence, right? Like even the thing that we're commemorating is literally political violence, right? But Britain were allowed because they were the good force neutralizing an evil force. Unfortunately, well, as I said, Palestinians don't get that afforded that same liberty. But secondly, those as as, as I'm glad that our prime minister has conceded, those were the exact values that um, the the kind of wars were were, were forged for, right? The, the, the and surprisingly, surprisingly the grandson of winston churchill yeah Superman, i
0: know yeah very very uncanny lookalike as well to be honest
2: yeah very very surprisingly the the grandson of winston churchill has come forward to be to, to kind of basically say hey listen we can't really stop this because it is exactly those values that are like you know country for um but suella braverman uh, what is she on, which is genuinely in my opinion deranged like her her entire kind of coverage to this entire issue has been like um uh inflammatory, right I think it's very, very hypocritical that she's there saying that oh these are hate marches and they're gonna incite violence and blah 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 and do you know what's so funny as well by the way, like these protests especially like a protest as big that is that is you know uh projected to be as big as this um they don't just happen out of thin air they have to be applied for they have to be approved you have to send the route beforehand so they know the route of the march and guess what it doesn't go near the cenotaph like the, the basically they're, they're saying that the the memorial the war memorial is the landmark war memorial the cenotaph is gonna is gonna be basically desecrated but they know what the route is and they know that the route doesn't cross the Senate off. So for Sola Braverman to come forward and to firstly even call these marches hate, you know, these peaceful protests hate marches, I don't know why she is not being challenged on the grounds on which she's making that claim. Because for me, that's completely just, that slanderous, you know, like that is, that is what's inflammatory because she's claiming that, oh, it's these, these, these pro-Palestinian marches that are like, um, that they're, they're insightful and they're hateful and blah, 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 blah. But it's her going forward and saying things that she knows are not rooted in any material truth or any empirical evidence. That to me is inflammatory because she knows there's gonna be a faction of like right wing wing extremists who are very protective over you know M- Remembrance Day and, and the war memorial, who will then kind of villainize and make an enemy out of the pro-Palestinian marches and who will then potentially go and feel as though it's their civil duty to protect the Senate off and, and, exactly, and god yeah. knows to to then lead to what kind of violence. This is the know? thing that like
0: even um, aside from the argument that Swilla comments have incited violence um, by those people against marches for Palestine, I would go as far as to argue as well that the average person that's taking part in a pro-Palestine march probably would forget that it's Remembrance Day, if I'm being honest. If this whole conversation hadn't been made massive by Suella Brotherman and the like, that are like, being like, oh, how could they protest on a Remembrance Day? This is ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. Guaranteed, a lot of people probably wouldn't have even clocked, and I have, have seen this, this... I have seen this morning that um, um two teenagers were arrested because they vandalised the senator. They, I think they wrote pre-Palestine on it um obviously can't condone vandalism um however i would go as far as to say that i doubt that would have happened if this whole issue hadn't hadn't been receiving as much, yeah, press coverage. And I
2: think she knows this and I think, I think she's like and this is my opinion, I think she's intentionally, like, and I've seen enough of her talk about this with enough consistency that I'm able to form an opinion where I think that she is trying to incite hate and she is trying to incite violence and she's, and she's, it was actually um, a a conservative member, uh, Saeed Awarsi, who, um i think she's a baroness she came forward and she actually gave a very very scathing condemnation of, of suella braverman when she said she's who is de- who is divisive she doesn't fix things she breaks things like she is the person who is causing a division in our society by coming out and employing rhetoric like this and and kind of making baseless accusations in that way um yeah. and, and she and she's she's way too smart to not know what she's doing you know so yeah I, I don't know i really really hope obviously that no violence breaks out uh, not least because you're like people who are like um uh trying to uh raise like sympathy for a certain cause, particularly the Palestinians who are we've seen time and time again, have have had to audition and perform for sympathy from the West. They are held to a much higher moral standard than everybody else. And and, and they are held to a standard, as I've said, of, of, of kind of nonviolence, of peaceful resistance. Um so you know the west in particular will use any excuse as they already have been to basically denigrate the palestinian cause and i really just hope that nothing happens where where, where that ends up being the case but if yeah. it does i know i know who i'm blaming personally
0: well on that note as well one of the reasons why soella brotherman um would or has been arguing that these pro-palestine matches are hate marches is due to the chant used during these marches which is for those who don't know long been used by um, people in support of Palestinian liberation and um, the chant in question is from the river to the sea Palestine will be free.
2: It references the uh, Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea so it's basically all of what was 1947
0: Palestine. So, Ella Braverman has come out and said this slogan is widely understood as a demand for the destruction of Israel. Attempts to pretend otherwise are disingenuous, according to her. Now, with that in mind, I've gone away and looked into exactly why um, certain people do have an issue with this um, chant. Um, So just to give the background as to the claims that people make, why they feel like they're scared by this or why they feel like this um, Chan is overly negative and causing for the destruction of Israel and or killing of Jewish people. Um, They argue that um, Hamas's founding charter back in the 1980s um, called for the creation of... ...of an Islamic state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. It therefore called for the elimination of a Jewish state... ...and um, was quoted as saying Islam will obliterate it. Now, the 27th Constitution of Hamas... ...is quoted as saying Hamas rejects any alternative... ...to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. Now, already it's the word liberation does not necessarily entail the destruction um of even the destruction of israel or the killing of jewish people um and it's also good well to note that the group has long distanced itself from this initial document it's now seeking a more explicitly anti-colonial stance um just to just to give the full background as to like what um people who have a problem with this are thinking Um, Like I said, they believe that this chant um, is chanted by people who want to erase the state of Israel and its people. They argue that it's a rallying cry for terrorist groups. It's a call for action against Jewish people and denies their right to self-determination. It's more of a threat than the promise of liberation. And they also make reference to the fact that in 1966, um, the Syrian leader Hafez al-Assad um, the father of the country's current dictator, said we shall only accept war and the restoration of usurped land to oust your aggressors and throw you into the sea for good. So it's obvious that there, this this kind of language from the river to the sea making references to the sea as well in regards to violence, no one can deny that like that has been used in that way in the past. However, I would argue that like just because people have used language in that way in the past, people who are very openly anti-Semitic, that does not mean that therefore people chanting in support of Palestinian liberation should therefore immediately be associated with those people.
2: I think um, the, the real kind of conundrum here is, um, first of all, the designation of Hamas as a terrorist group. Now, and when I say designation, I mean like by from the UK government, they are officially designated as a terrorist organization. Um, And for me personally, I have always, always had issues with uh, the UK's definition of what terrorism is. I kind of point us to the Stansted. Stansted, twelve, Stan- Stansted 6?
0: 15, I don't know, around that. Right.
2: I can't remember the the group of Stansted uh, people who you know protested at Stansted Airport against a deport uh, a deportation flight to somewhere in the Caribbean, I believe, and who were then kind of um, apprehended and trialled as terrorists. Um, I think for you know, those of us who are non-white, particularly those of you who are, who are Muslims, uh, we could, we've come to understand how normatively constructed and applied the label and the accusation of terrorist is in this country, um, and how arbitrarily it has been thrown around, for example, in the case of the Stansted protesters. Um, so in that vein, if kind of, I, I've said before, the kind of textbook definition of terrorism is uh, a, a person or a group who employs political violence to obtain so who, who, who employs violence to obtain a political means and um, so if we're talking about a textbook definition yeah Hamas are terrorists but then so are the Israeli state right um, so I think when we're talking about kind of uh, respecting the UK's definition or designation of Hamas as a terrorist state, we can only do that if they in turn also designate the Israeli state and the IDF as a terrorist organization. Either Hamas and the IDF are terrorists or neither of them are, right? And that's that's my own personal stance because that's a, that's a double standard, that's a hypocrisy. Every single criteria that Hamas have um, satisfied in order to be designated as, as, as a terrorist state as a terrorist organization, sorry, um, the Israeli state have also satisfied. So why do they not get the same label? That's firstly. Secondly, this kind of, um, the, the, the the contention surrounding the the slogan of from the river to the sea really points to the bone of contention between a two state versus a one state solution. Um, so the two-state solution basically calls for um, a, uh, well, largely it calls for the return of the 1967 border, so the U- UN partition plan, basically, where Israel, there's an Israeli state, and then there's a Palestinian state, um, but obviously Israel are not allowed to encroach, they're not allowed to have illegal settlements, and, and that's kind of what... Um, a lot of people kind of campaign for the two-state solution. Some people, however, campaign for a one-state solution, which is essentially the dismantling of the Israeli state and the reinstating of a Palestinian state. Now, one thing I do want to say is that a lot of people misconstrue the one state solution as being anti-Semitic because they see the dismantling of that of the Israeli state as being a dismantling of like the Jewish population, which absolutely is not in any capacity whatsoever. And this is really where we see what the danger is of ethno states. Right. And and, and building um, an ethnic identity. Um, and a political identity around a a kind of man-made border, you know, where your entire identity is tethered to this border, the destruction of that nation state, therefore, um, kind of makes people afraid of, like, the destruction of the people within it. That's not what the one-state solution um, uh, 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 points to. It basically... I believe my this is what my personal opinion is. My personal opinion is that the one state solution is what should have happened pre 1947. Um, I've spoken before on the show about how I absolutely uphold the Jewish claim to the Holy Lands. I said before how I absolutely uphold um, the kind of uh, need for protection of the Jewish population, given what they'd gone through, especially with the Holocaust and anti-Jewish pogroms. Um. However, I disagree that it then necessitated the state of Israel. I I, kind of, my belief was that they should have been allowed to to, to emigrate back to, or, or to, not emigrate, sorry, to to go and settle in Palestinian land, maybe as a protected demographic by the UN. The UN really could have done that. Um, But I don't think it necessitated an Israeli state, especially not one that was then predicated on settler colonialism and apartheid. So those people who speak for one state solution now You know, even in the most literal terms, by the way, like the the slogan from the rivers to the sea is just about Palestinian liberation, whatever it looks like, whether that's a two state solution or a one state solution. But let's say, for example, we're going to take it absolutely face value and we're going to assume that from the river to the sea means the one state solution, um, which is kind of presented as like, oh, my God, the worst option possible. Like I've seen literally people talk about how this would then mean that there's going to be another Holocaust, which is like it's so inflammatory. Is so inflammatory because that's not what it means. All it means is that the pre-1947 borders are reinstated, the Palestinian land is restored as Palestine, the Palestinian borders are restored as Palestine and the Jewish people are free to live there as they have for millennia, right? That's all that means and it is a completely legitimate and completely valid and a completely feasible and peaceful proposition to put forward, right? So to make out that Even the most literal definition of the slogan or the most literal insinuation of the slogan from the river to the sea means that the annihilation of the Jewish people is just in every single kind of example just completely wrong, right? Unless obviously you're one of the extremists who do actually believe that, in which case, like, no one's got time for you, go away, (laughs) like put him in the jail cell i don't know
0: but any, any zionist out there who has had a problem with this so far understand how much it means for halima to actually advocate for putting someone in the jail cell. no
2: but like i don't even think i need to say that i don't think i need to say that like i've spoken i've spoken I, I i make it a point to not say that like do you know what i mean because like i i've spoken at length on even on this show and on my personal platforms about how as a especially as a muslim i deeply revere the Jewish faith, the Jewish people and our shared and our claims to us and, and the Jewish claim to our shared holy lands. That's not what this is about. Um It's about the kind of Israeli state as a state that is predicated on settler colonialism and apartheid, I completely agree that Jewish people should be allowed to live in what they believe to be their ancestral homeland. I completely believe that Jewish people should have been given an an added level of security and protection from the governing powers of the world. I completely agree with that. they should have been given reparations, I believe you know. Um, I don't believe that that all then means that the Israeli state was necessitated and mandated or that it's, or that it's the Israeli state needs to exist in order for Jewish people to live on their ancestral homeland and in order for Jewish people to be protected. I don't believe that.
0: Like I gave a bit of background in regards to why people feel like the um, chant is hate speech, um, to give a bit of background as to why other people feel the opposite way. Um, like Kalim has already outlined, for a lot of people out there, I think see this um, chant as a call for freedom. It calls for the equality of um, all inhabitants of historic Palestine, including Jewish people, throughout the entirety of the historic homeland. Obviously, we know Palestinians have been denied um, their own right to self-determination since 1917. Um, It's also worth bearing in mind that... um, the original chant, as well as in Arabic, and it doesn't actually even rhyme. And this like controversy has been fabricated, um, in order to prevent solidarity in the West with Palestinians, Dr. Naima Sultani, um, they. Um, see the dynamic as play as an attempt by Zionists and pro-Israeli propagandists to collapse the distinction between the existence of Israel as a state and as an ideological apparatus of Jewish supremacy. Also in 2021, Palestinian-American Yusuf Munir um, argued that those who saw genocidal ambition in the phrase or indeed an unambiguous desire for des- the destruction of Israel did so due to their own Islamophobia. Palestinians want to be neither dominated by others nor dominate them.
2: As a side note, I don't believe in any ethno-state. Like, I, even as a Bangladeshi, I have openly come forward and, like, I did my whole master's thesis on criticising the... Bangladeshi attempt at being an ethno state, you know, I don't believe that there should be any border that's drawn around any demographic of people. um, And where 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 one becomes superior to the other or where one has an inherent claim to any land because of whatever ethnic belief, you know, so that's not just for Israel, I believe that even in the case of my own ancestral homeland, I don't think that just because I'm Bengali, I have any more of a claim to that land than you know, like other indigenous people who have been there or whatever. Um, Even in like cases like India, I have come forward and time and time again, like criticized the kind of um, Hindu nationalistic project of creating India as an an ethno state as well. So, you know, it's not, this is not kind of, oh, this is a specific opinion on like Israel. This is an ideological belief that I have about borders and citizenship um, in in general.
0: It's been um, said that, the majority of accusations of this chant having genocidal intent are a result of a combination of settler colonial anxiety, projection, deliberate misinterpretation, and an enduring bunker mentality. Um, And also if we look um, at um, similar instances of settler colonialism in history, obviously apartheid in South Africa, In an article for The Globe and Mail under the title The Good Side of White South Africa, Kenneth Walker argued that ending the apartheid system and giving everyone an equal vote would be a recipe for slaughter in Africa. Um, Others then came out to claim that these activists were actually motivated by anti-white racism fueled by black imperialism. Now I think the point here is that obviously in um, apartheid in South Africa the oppressed were accused of being oppressors or having oppressive rhetoric. And that's kind of similar to what we've just been talking about here where in Palestine, we already know that Palestinians are massively oppressed by Israel and there's no question of that asymmetry in terms of literally every single element. Yet somehow Palestinians are the ones attempting to oppress israelis it doesn't really make sense if
2: anyone pays any attention to any aspect of the palestinian liberation movement throughout all of history at no point has and, and this is again not discounting the fact that yes there will be um uh, extremists um like there are on both sides um, on all sides of any movement, actually, on the fringes of any movement, yes, there will be extremists who have, like, anti-Semitic views and whatever, and as I say, they should be completely discredited. They should not be allowed a seat at the table. Um, but anyone who's paid any attention to, kind of, the the, the for the most of it, um, there has, like, anti-Semit- anti-Semitism has never been an agenda of Palestinian liberation. Palest- the, the agenda of Palestinian liberation has been Palestinian liberation, you know, and it's particularly Western um, news outlets and media personalities that are kind of uh, weaponizing the fear, the very real fear that Jewish people have of a repeated um, Holocaust to basically kind of villainize the palestinian liberation movement and i think that is so twisted like i think
0: as well like it's the same in every attempt of decolonization in history yeah, for example exactly i've got a it. quote here from um, thomas jefferson during the t- time of the um african slave trade he likens slavery to a wolf saying we have the wolf by the ear, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go justice is in one scale and self-preservation in the other it's essentially the oppressors in any instance of colonization of course if you bring up the idea of like decolonization they're immediately going to bring up the argument of oh like well we can't do that these people are too dangerous we don't know what's going to happen like obviously they're going to be scared of that when in reality the people that are being oppressed simply just want to be free
2: want to be free no that's exactly it and like they rely on those um false rhetoric right because they know that like any reasonable person would be able to sympathize with uh, a, a liberatory call of any oppressed people. Um, They have to make things up. They have to, I, I said before, like, um, the Zionist project really relies on, like, Um, opening up portals of ahistoricism i have seen so much ahistoricism from kind of zionist or pro israeli supporters to the point where i'm like how can how are these people allowed to like like i even saw someone say like oh there was no palestinian state before israel and they mean that and it's like what kind of level of brainwashing must have occurred here for you to kind of really put such a inane claim forward.
0: With so much confidence as well.
2: With so much confidence.
0: The thing that's especially ironic as well is that this whole river to the sea language, Israel have actually used this similar language before themselves. Um, Netanyahu's party Um, Their original manifesto from 1977 literally said between the sea and the Jordan, there will only be Israeli sovereignty and that the establishment of a Palestinian state jeopardizes the security of the Jewish population and endangers the existence of the state of Israel.
2: This is a very popular thing we've seen from the Israeli state where they uh, use their own, they, they use things that they have done as charges against the Palestinians.
0: I think the thing that's trickier and maybe as an ending point is that there obviously are um, a lot of people out there, um, majority of whom Jewish um, who do feel um, a certain type of way about this chant. What do we do when there are genuinely people out there who do feel uncomfortable with like using this chant because also at the end of the yeah. week we can't just turn around and be like
2: oh no you shouldn't no i i, I completely i understand once again we said on the show like we understand that the reason why the charge of anti-semitism is so effective is because it's a real thing right and and it's a real fear that jewish people have unfortunately um people uh, we, we see it time and time again it's basic human psychology where your worst fears are used against you right and and that's kind of really what we're seeing with the Jewish population where their worst fear of a repeated holocaust is being used to to kind of brainwash them and and on, in that vein we completely sympathize with any kind of earn you know any earnest kind of Jewish person who is a little bit confused you know he was kind of cuz cuz what i'm seeing increasingly on social media is jewish people talk about oh, what was the moment when that radicalized you? Or what was the moment that you first said, what about Palestine? What was the moment that you realized when you faced been first been brainwashed? So this is a, a kind of phenomenon that is sweeping across the Jewish population. And for those of you who are kind of standing on that cusp and you're kind of maybe starting to see your the Israeli government in a certain light, but you're still worried about what that might mean for you as a Jewish person in a largely anti-Semitic world, um, firstly, we completely sympathize with that but secondly like the best way to and I say this genuinely from a place of love and a place of care like the best way to kind of not let those fears control you is to confront those things like um speak to, to, to have gen- genuine earnest conversations with like Palestinians ideally if you can or or, or someone who is pro-Palestine, who understands the history, who understands the context, who you know would be happy to explain to you. I cannot tell you now, like as a Muslim, as someone who has been pro-Palestine for as long as I've understood anything about politics, um, as someone who is very privy to the liberation movement, um, I cannot think of anyone um, who wouldn't welcome kind of or who who wouldn't welcome that kind of dialogue with a Jewish person, right? In complete, if it's if it's earnest and it's genuine, I can't imagine anyone who even even someone like me, even someone like me, and I don't have time for no one who disagrees with me. But even me, you know, I, I would I would I would welcome that if it's a chance to like genuinely quell some fears and to like really make someone kind of undo that brainwashing. So my first thing is like try if you can to like speak to Palestinians or speak to pro-Palestinians. Um try if you can seek out like objective historical accounts of what the what what this issue is, where it came from. Seek out objective facts of what the occupation is and what it has done to the Palestinians. Um and there are also numerous kind of obviously I understand the kind of you got to have rapport, you got to have feel safe. Like, there are numerous Jewish pro-Palestinians. Speak to them. You know, if you're more comfortable speaking amongst your own community, there are so many out there. Um, Literally a TikTok search, pr- Jewish pro-Palestinian, and there's like hundreds and thousands of, of videos and, and kind of pieces of content that you can find about that. But honestly, like, I understand why you're scared. You just need to be, you need to be brave. Um. And just try your best to kind of like open that dialogue, whether it's with a Palestinian or whether it's whether it's with a pro- Palestinian Jewish person.
0: Well said, come to that point of the episode where I ask you you are you having for your tea? what <laughs> you know? What are, you, ma- what are think... you making for other people?
2: I know my mum cooked, oh, she's so ridiculous. She got like fifty million dishes. Today, oh. what she made she made like pila rice, um like a Bangladeshi like chicken roast like curry thing um she made like chili chicken like 50 million fish dishes uh butter she made like a butter uh, prawn masala whatever it's really, it looks really good but i don't eat prawn
0: okay i'm really hungry now right well thank you everyone that's tuned in and um, make sure you stay tuned in because we're going to be chatting to two more guests shortly nasha and daniel thank you everyone and we will see you next week bye yes guys what's good you're tuned in to mango masala Pi radio south asian show my name's Gerns, and i'm here with nasha i realized i should have asked before we started is that the correct pronunciation
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's the same as the dog from dallas the store.
0: <laughs> i mean i do have to be um honest i was a Beano fan growing up so that was where my mind went to first <laughs> um but i'm glad you brought it up rather than me so thank you for that you must be tired of that though
1: um to be honest pe- kids would always ask me growing up um did your parents name you after the dog from *Dinosaur*? and Menace and I was like no my Muslim parents didn't name me after a dog
0: <laughs> mm. so for the people at home who maybe um haven't heard of your name before do you want to just let us know a little bit about yourself what you do your background that sort of thing
1: yeah sure so my name's Nasha I'm a new poet writer Um, I have a book coming out called The Shadow of My Ancestral Tree which will be out on the 26th of October and it's basically a collection about diaspora growing up as the child of South Asian immigrants and I touch on a lot of different subjects like race, um, class, feminism, issues of diaspora all Things that would affect any young South Asian person, really.
0: So, before we like get into talking about the book, just a bit about yourself as an individual. um, What what has your own experience been? Obviously, growing up as a South Asian individual. I presume you grew up in Britain, right?
1: Yeah, I'm born and raised in East London. So, I actually am a pharmacist by background, um, but I've always been really passionate about. Equity because growing up, I grew up with both my parents are immigrants, they came from Bangladesh. And I feel like, also being someone of a working class descent, I faced a lot of issues that I think a lot of people from that demographic word like, for example, racism and feeling really alone and feeling like you don't belong anywhere. It's almost like this no man's land. You don't, I didn't feel like I belonged to Bangladesh, but at the same time, I didn't feel like I belonged to England. So it was, it was quite lonely, to be honest. And I realised that a lot of the experiences I had growing up reflecting was basically because of my identity as a South Asian um, child of immigrants. And especially when I navigated going into higher education as first person in my family going into workplaces feeling like mad imposter syndrome and not feeling like I ever belonged I think that's when I realized that growing up and not seeing any representation really does affect you because you don't really have any role models to look up to or have anyone that you can think would relate to you because it almost feels like you can't even relate to your own parents at times because they're just from a different land. Um, So, yeah, I felt like I was constantly fighting. Every day was a new fight against within.
0: Yeah, for sure. I can definitely relate to that, especially with the whole idea of being um, a child of immigrants. I mean, I'm, a bit of back context, I'm mixed race. My dad is um, an Indian immigrant to the UK. um, And Mm -hmm. definitely from his perspective, that is that sense of... um, Lack of connection in that sense in terms of I obviously have no idea what it was like for him to grow up in India and emigrate here and that sort of thing. I only know what I've experienced um mm. but then at the same time, obviously you've got not necessarily feeling um fully accepted in the u k either um or in any general setting, so yeah, definitely relatable for a lot of people I would say I think as well the first thing I thought as well was when you obviously said that you're um of Bangladeshi origin and growing up in East London I can imagine as well obviously that sense of identity crisis also maybe being impacted by massive um, gentrification that is taking place in East London as well because obviously what used to be like kind of like a thriving um Bengali hub almost is very um Gradually, but it is inevitably like getting switched up, and that that one sense of what you maybe could be seen as like your British Asian identity is slowly getting faded away. Like we have talked about that quite a lot.
1: So, in particular, Brick Lane and Tower Hamlets area is such a massive place for the Bengali community, and my dad coming here he always said to me that bang that is like Bangladesh to him it's like a home away from home and prior to bengali's being there it was the home for jewish people so it's always been a home for ethnic minorities basically and now it's like a lot of East London has been gentrified massively for all your vinyl cool bars and all of that rubbish but at the same time it is wiping away our community and you see it's just so ironic because I'll go there and I think maybe because I don't... Some people don't think that I'm Bengali for whatever reason because they have a certain notion of what a Bengali person should look like, which is really stupid in, its, in itself. But when I go there and I see all these really rich... Mostly white hipsters with their five pound coffees and whatever. It's just really, it's really sad because you've just got a community that's been driven out of where they're from and they are going to go into somewhere that is most likely really impoverished and poor conditions. And then you have all these new amazing city workers and these amazing, lovely accommodation and it's it's really it's really really sad to be honest and I think it also adds to there's a lot of guilt that I think like the children of immigrants face in that as well because I still go to Brooklyn and I'm like wow I think it's great I love it but then I feel guilty because I feel like I'm betraying my community. And I think that is also a massive thing that I have felt as a child of immigrants. Like you're struggle and your suffering will never be as bad as your parents so you kind of have to suck it up and live up to these massive expectations of like I'm gonna be a doctor definitely Mm. all this
0: yeah for sure I mean obviously you find it hard to remember that everything is subjective and the way that you're feeling is perfectly valid just because they might have gone through something which you view as being an incredibly hard experience and probably harder than anything that you might end up going through it doesn't negate the way that you're feeling but yeah I get that sense of like guilt and being like okay I just need to suck it up but obviously to anyone listening as well that isn't the case the way that you're feeling is perfectly valid in that sense yeah. um so I suppose this is all probably ended up um influencing um your book right because um, it started off as diary entries if I'm not wrong so how did it go from being something that you were mainly keeping for yourself to then something that you're like no actually I want to share this with the world
1: so during the pandemic like a lot of us I needed a hobby <laughs> I started writing because it was always a hobby as a kid and I was going through some really bad like mental health issues at the time So one of the things I learned is if you pick up something from childhood that you really enjoy, it can help you. So I started doing that. And then last summer, I went through um, trigger warding. But um, I went through a really bad experience where I was sexually assaulted. I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. Thank you. But after I went through that time, had some time off work, and I realized that a lot of things that I write about and all the... Most of the issues that I've faced have been because of my identity, be that as an Asian person, as a child of immigrants, as a working class person, as a woman, as someone who's had mental health issues, is all mostly be- been because of my identity. And when I realised that, I was like, that is So bad, (laughs) that is so wrong, and I realized I had hundreds of poems basically detailing my experience, which so many people go through, it's not just me. So I decided. To collect all my poems, put it into a book, and I'm a pharmacist, so I have no idea how to publish. So I was on Google, like, how do you publish a book? I have no idea. And luckily, I found my publisher, who are amazing. They're all about championing, um, people from disadvantaged backgrounds, and they agreed. But it was it was never planned, honestly.
0: Going back a bit as well, you said that you started writing during, um, lockdown, so. Was When you say writing, was that the first time that you actually started any form of poetry at all or had you done stuff before then?
1: So I used to write, when I was about 16, I used to write poems. I used, was a bit of an emo kid, so I like writing songs as well. Then I stopped and then when I was about 20, I started writing for Link Up TV. I was a music journalist. But then I realised, although that was an amazing opportunity, that's not really what I wanted. do with writing so yeah poems like taking it seriously was from the pandemic
0: and like where did that interest come from like and why was it I want to write down how I'm feeling in poetry rather than just a journal entry for example
1: I think because I've always been interested in writing I love book so much it's always been a big passion of mine and I think also in the in Bengali culture in Asian culture poetry is a big part of our our culture Bengalis died for our language it's a bit, I grew up with my dad quoting all of these incredible Bengali poets to me all the time and telling me stories of the war and even in my religion in Islam poetry is a big part of our religion as well it's a big art form and I think I'm I'm a creative person and I found it easier to express myself via art rather than just being like I'm really sad I just found it really hard to articulate everything that was going on in my head and I think poetry gave me the perfect outlet to do so
0: no no, I think as someone who um doesn't follow the Islamic faith um from what I've seen I can definitely see what you mean about um how it is quite poetic and beautiful in a lot of senses I mean obviously as well I've only seen the English interpretations which I'm sure are kind of butchering it in a way anyway but the fact that it appears so poetic in that form I can only imagine that in its obviously original form it is still that sense of um what's it called free-flowing poetry um song that sort of thing definitely
1: yeah like the Quran, a lot of people say like one of the reasons why people will say they believe in Islam is because the Quran is written in a way in which no one could ever write because it's so perfect in like the use of stanzas, the use of rhythm, the use of language is just it's immaculate. So I think yeah, it's it's been since birth really a massive inspiration for me.
0: So going back to the book, um, obviously it's relating to your own personal experiences. Um, so in that sense it is very much authentic in the way that it's compiled a load of your own entries from over the years Um, but having said that when it's all put together there are a number of key themes that do come through right so do you want to just tell us a little bit about some of those?
1: So the key themes I would say is diaspora, um, racism, I talk a lot about political issues like Palestine is a big one in there, Afghanistan, Black Lives Matter, Grenfell Tower. I talk about mental health a lot. I talk about um, a lot of stuff to do with women and harassment and feminism and confidence. Um, I talk about religion. I've I've talked about a bit of love. We all like a bit of love, a bit of grief, heartbreak, just literally everything that is part of the human experience i know that sounds really vast but i would say the main the main take-home message of the book is about being the child of immigrants
0: yeah i mean like you just said it's um a lot of that is relating to the quote-unquote human experience but i think the fact that this has come from your own personal diary entries um although that might seem quite personal to a lot of people, there's actually maybe some comfort in the fact that this is actually something that's quite relatable or will be quite relatable for a lot of people and that they can find solace in like reading that and feeling, okay, I'm not alone. This is something that I may be feeling put into words that I can then... Because I think as well, it might even possibly be more easy for someone to actually consume and understand what they're feeling hearing it or reading it through poetry rather than some like paragraph of just medical or scientific text for example that sort of thing
1: and i do think that representation is everything and i think that growing up south asians didn't have any representation and i think that led to the feelings of being alone so i hope that this it is really I'll be honest, it's terrifying that my diary is going to be out there in the world. However, the reason why I agree to it is because I want people to know that they're not alone, especially South Asian people. Our experience is valid. And a lot of the reasons that perhaps that we feel the way we do is not because of us, but it's because of identity and social issues like kids of diaspora are so much more likely to go through depression and anxiety and you you would never know that you would just think oh there's something wrong with me I don't really know why um and then when you see things in the news for example now it's I know it's not really a South Asian issue what's going on in Palestine and Israel you see these things going on and you feel like as a person of color do I not matter my life is worth less basically than what a white person would be so i think this is why this is so important this representation to just not feel alone and know that you matter
0: would you say that that is the main thing that you are trying to achieve through putting this book out that is essentially i think you said yourself being a um, book for the voiceless basically uh, giving those people that maybe feel like they're not represented that they um feel out of place if they're ever to raise their own um tone um they actually can read this and feel like you know what no actually i am valid in how i'm feeling and gain some
2: kind of comfort from that
1: yeah it's about giving a voice to people who don't who have never had voices in media it's about all the conversations you have with your friends or with your family or the things that you get really upset about at night i'm putting out there because people need to know, we need to have these conversations, because otherwise change will never happen, and enough is enough, enough is enough.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really brave of you, but also, like, I think, like you say, it takes one person to put it out there, then more people start doing it, and these conversations start happening, and it doesn't, it doesn't normalise it in the sense that people become numb to it, and start accepting it it's more that the more that it's talked about the more people actually realize okay this isn't okay and change actually ends up happening
1: yeah exactly and I think because I wrote the collection in my early 20s it's very much it's very relatable even for somebody who isn't a child of immigrants as well they could it's all about like, exploring and not really knowing where you are and feeling really lost. So I think that universal sense of being lost can be translatable to many people. And I hope in that sense, it will unite people as well.
0: So where can people actually get the book from?
1: So you can get it from the Artbound website, you can get it from Amazon, and you can also get it from Waterstones. So quite a few places
0: and for people that want to follow you and your writing journey um and the progress of the book as well um where can they find you
1: so you can follow me on instagram my art is um nash nash said and also i have a poetry page called soul wise on tiktok i'm called g nash nash to give homage to Beano. <laughs> Think all those things, and yeah, it would be really cool if you guys could join me on this journey.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, it's been a pleasure. Um, before we like round things off, um, do you want to maybe just read a piece from the book for us so people can get a taste of what to expect?
3: Yeah,
1: sure, it's called Dad: The Burden of Fathers is to Have Watery Eyes, Withered Spirits. No one's hug at the end of the day to have come here for a better life, but it is not at all what you thought it would look like. Your accent made fun of racism, a lack of opportunity, ridicule and disrespect, birthing a tendency to always look back, yearning for a time that no longer exists. The past is where depression lives. Working 14 days in a row just to make ends meet. With kids who cannot even speak your language. Your future void of your culture. Dressed up in Nike track suits and hoop earrings. Frustrated. But everyone back home thinks you are living it up. The future has been taken from you. There is nothing to look forward to except for your children's achievements. You hold the branches of the tree over us, no matter how cold, hungry or lost you get. You hold the branches over us to your own detriment. Dear fathers, thank you for all the sacrifice, navigating of unknown waters, for tolerating disrespect. I am sorry that you are the sail in the boat and we are the lucky passengers. You gave us the chance to change the future. For you, I will make a legacy.
0: Yes, guys, what's good? You're tuned into Mango Masala, Pi Radio South Asian Show. My name's Gerns, and I'm joined now live in the studio with Danielle. How are you doing?
4: I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me.
0: No, oh, thank you. And thank you also for the Maltesers that you brought. <laughs> very much appreciated. I just wanted to drop that in there for anyone that's listening who's maybe thinking about coming on the show in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Learn your lesson So do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself
4: um, and why you're here today? Absolutely, so uh, yeah, as Gerns um, mentioned, my name is Daniel uh, I am a singer-songwriter uh, based in Manchester um, I've recently released a song So the music video dropped yesterday and the song, the audio dropped the week before um, But yes, yeah, so I'm just here to, to speak about that Sweet, um,
0: so we'll get on to the song which is called Honest later yep. on um, but just to chat about you, first of all, mm. um, how did you get into music? Um, especially because just before we got on air as well, you told me that you actually only moved to the UK three years ago, right? Yep. So did your music journey start like back home Like for, Just tell us a little bit About your background basically
4: Absolutely Yeah so um I it, It's weird I was born in Milton Keynes In the UK Oh so you were Okay you yeah, were so born i got, got the passport okay. right So I was born in Milton Keynes But I was born in October 2000 And then two months after that I was back in Pakistan Okay So uh, let's just say My parents are quite smart The fact that Now all my siblings Have British passports <laughs> <That is laughs> so it was It was, it was all tactical. very planned um, But yeah So born here But never lived here Um Grew up Born I mean not born Raised in Karachi um, that's where I've lived, kind of spent the first 18 years of my life um, and moved here for university. But in terms of music, I mean, I was always into kind of the entertainment side of things. Like, you know, in front of my family, I was always the the guy that's like singing, etc. But I think professionally and properly, I only started doing it um, pro- when I moved here. Because I was like, OK, if I, I do this and I want to kind of do something with it, let me just take it seriously. Um, so I think sure. a year and a half is when I properly started doing it. Cool. So, like, coming over here for uni then, I'm presuming, so you go to uni Manchester? I did go to uni Manchester, yeah.
0: What was that like as well? Because I'm, if I'm doing the math, was that during the pandemic? Yeah. So I'm coming all the way from Pakistan as well, so <laughs> what was that like for you?
4: Yeah, it was, um, out of my three years of university, I was only in Manchester for 10 months. Um, wow. So, yeah. So, what, I, were you doing it remote
0: from Pakistan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
4: So, I, yeah, September I came here, 2019, and then... March is when COVID hit um, and I had to go back home so exactly one year six months I spent a box on my whole of second year was there rest of my first year and then I came back for third year Um, but you know obviously when I was in second year I was like oh this is going to be really bad but um, yeah I mean you know it is what it is was one of those things you kind of have to just carry on I guess.
0: What are you up to now then are you solely focusing on music or do you have something else going on?
4: Yeah no so um, like been working for for a year but yeah like music music on the side obviously like i because i live here on my own my parents and everyone still live back home so you need a source of income to be able to fund the music yeah um so yeah um basically that yeah cool so talk to me first of all about your first
0: track mm-hmm. so first track was traffic yep. and i remember that actually like was it was about a year or yes, so ago was. yeah um and i remember because it wasn't necessarily a massive track with like loads of like mm-hmm. mega production mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's weird because I like, obviously when honest came through i was like oh yeah i remember now because it was like, like it's stuck in my head <laughs> um so clearly you're doing something right with that so how did traffic
4: come about so traffic, oh, this is such a funny story. My cousin, who's a doctor, right, as every brown person who's watching this will understand, um, either doctor, lawyer, or engineer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, when I was at uni, so he was doing medicine, and he would make medicine raps to remember stuff. Oh, okay. learn sort of YouTube. Yeah. And he was in Manchester um, for his friend's wedding. He was staying with me in my uni accommodation in Fallowfield. And then I had, like, you know, just a mic and an interface, whatever. So we are like, oh, why don't we just give ourselves 24 hours to write, record, produce, film music video like do everything from from scratch and it was like a challenge because i was like okay i've been wanting to release and write but you know you're just lazy so mm-hmm. i was like this might be a proper incentive so he came on friday night and then we just spent the whole day 24 hours on the dot we filmed it on whimsburg road at like 2 a.m yeah uh, so was it him in the car with you yes yes that's yeah, it that's him, right. that's him. Yeah, yeah absolutely um so yeah we kind of he produced it uh we both wrote our bits um and then yeah that it was literally obviously it was done on an amateur level so in terms of mixed mastering uh, it was done all by you know himself where he's just not really a mixer or a master but no, uh, it, felt, it felt very much like
0: authentic kind of grassroots production like literally also the fact that obviously the music video is literally just you like sitting yeah, in yeah, the yeah, car yeah, singing yeah, yeah, along yeah. like but no like like i said like there's still something about it because it literally was still stuck in my head like and we played <laughs> a lot of music on this show for the, so for that to like stick in my head clearly very it's funny. it's catchy so what was it that made you want to take like, that year-long break then? Because obviously it's been a bit of a while since you dropped this first single.
4: Yeah, Um. to be honest, I told myself that my next song, which actually wasn't going to be honest, um, that I was going to drop it in January, right? And, you know, the typical music thing, oh, coming out soon, coming out soon. And then I met uh, Sam Malik. You've, yeah. uh, you know, you've, he's been on the show here. Um, and he's the one actually I'll release Honest With. I was speaking to him and I was kind of like, you know, what advice would you give me? Because obviously when I moved to Manchester, I didn't know anyone in the music industry at all. And I was like, how will I meet people? And just by going to one event, I just met one person and they introduced me to someone else and, you know, you just meet people like that. And he just said, batch record record, um, because once you start releasing, you don't want to have gaps. Sure. And obviously I was really annoyed at the fact that I, a year is a very long gap to, you know, and obviously like Traffic was my first song. So wherever I was like, okay, I want to release consistently. But I think it was now I'm in a position where I've got enough songs to now release consistently. Um so it's not just like, oh I've dropped Honours and then a year a year now again. Yeah, definitely next year. <laughs> yeah, honest was recorded back in February. So it was done okay. it's been done since Feb. Um but yeah, so it's just I, I think it was just that that time, which I, I I know I could have maybe been a bit more proactive, but yeah.
0: Nice. So obviously you mentioned Sam Malik on the beats. So how what was it that Obviously, you said you've met him and mm. had that discussion, mm. but what what led you to being like, okay, I want to go and release music with these mm. guys. Like, this is the correct move for me.
4: I think... Um... So I I performed, I was fortunate enough to perform at um, Festival Square, which is part of Manchester International Festival. Um, It was my second ever gig, which was mental for me. You know, I'd only performed at a bar or or like a cafe once, and that was my second ever performance in front of like 300 people. And he reached out, I didn't even ask him. He got me that gig, and he was very, very nice and very helpful. and, And I was like, you know, why is he doing that? And I was like, I just, you know, the fact that he was willing to help out, I was like, okay, you know, that means there's some sort of relationship then and, and if i can learn from him and, and you know utilize that and you know why not yeah for sure
0: so i'm presuming then like obviously we'll get to talk about honest but mm-hmm. if that was done in february yeah so does that imply that since february you've been doing what you said you wanted to do in terms of getting that music ready so it's ready to release
4: then? yeah 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 so i think i've got and like every musician will say you've got loads of songs, but. Um, I Weirdly enough I've got this thing Where you know Loads of musicians Will just record Just keep recording And writing all the time I don't do that um, Maybe I should And I definitely should Because you know Just improve skills But I will only record And make a song Firstly I make a song With a producer So I don't get a beat On, on the internet I will I prefer sitting with a producer From scratch Making something And I will only make it If I'm like Okay I'm going to release this um, So which is why Like I've literally Only written the songs That I would release And okay. they're like Maybe another four or five um, that I've worked with people, but it's literally been, I'm like, okay, cool. Like, if we're working on this, if we're spending the time, if you're spending the time making this, I will want to release this. So it's not going to yeah. be just like, just for the sake of practice, you know? Exactly. And
0: I think there's one argument to be had about people that are maybe at the start of their musical career, mm-hmm. that they should be maybe doing as much as possible and experimenting. But then there's another side of it, which is that ultimately when you're starting out, you don't actually have as much time and resources. So if you're just focusing on what you actually want hmm. to do and what you think is, authentic to yourself Mm -hmm. like in a way there is actually a plus side to that as well
4: absolutely and i think you know if i'm spending the money to go record in studio um and if i'm not making money from from music it doesn't make sense to do loads of songs and i'm like okay maybe if i'm making 10 songs which obviously costs a lot of money to release one as opposed to let me just focus on that one song and be like okay this is going to be the song that i'm going to release
0: exactly like
4: um like off topic,
0: like Dua Lipa came back like yesterday, mm-hmm. and in her interview with um, Radio One, she revealed that, like for this new album, she's recorded 97 songs. Uh, obviously, she's Dua Lipa, she's like global pop <laughs> yeah, star, yeah, yeah. so she has the resources to be able to do that. Of course. But say if it was like what five ten years ago obviously she wouldn't be in that position so it's all about like kind of judging where you're at and uh, like you said i i don't see the point of like spending loads of money if you like unless you like beggar rich in which you can just yeah. do whatever you want but course, like yeah <laughs> i don't see the point like you say of spending loads of money to go and sit in a studio if that work is not going to see the light of day
4: yeah absolutely and and obviously uh, maybe i'll change my opinion on this and and obviously i know for a fact i should be writing more like that's just you know as a musician you need to improve your writing and recording skills Mm -hmm. um it's not something i have done yet but i guess this is just me saying how i've taken it It, it, it i'm not saying this is the right way to do it but it's just how i've done it
0: sure so focusing on honest now um listening through to the lyrics sounds very much like from your perspective Mm -hmm. you're on one end of a relationship Mm -hmm. where um, the other person just is kind of done with it and, like, like it's they just want to be friends, whatever, but you're like, no, like, but I can't. <laughs> like, is that the vibe we're going for?
4: Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I think I, I think the person who I wrote the song about is probably listening to this right now. Fair enough. <laughs> um, That's cool, though. That's yeah, cool, isn't it? <laughs> it? It was weird. I, I mean, I'll, I'll get onto it, but I, yesterday I told them, because I'm still good friends with the person, so I told okay. them, I like, like yeah the songs about you and then it was just it was just a funny conversation but yeah it was it was more so like a situationship where you know for me I I met someone and you know I come from from a Muslim background and for me I you know the dating stuff is just not for me so I'm like okay I'm gonna do something seriously and and you know I kind of uh, was like okay you know why not take it seriously whatever um and then you know we spoke and um it didn't work out because you know the said person wasn't supportive and personal preference that's fine for my music and just didn't like the fact that i wanted to do music as a full-time thing which is obviously unfortunate but it's just one of those things so the song was basically like you know it starts off i don't care about what you had to say you know like it was like but obviously it hurt but you know like it was just one of the situations where it's bad but i'm glad you're honest about it and we yeah. kind of clarified it early on instead of going somewhere
0: yeah now i hope that there is a bit of a difference between the song, if it's authentic Yourself, and the music video. Because the ending of the music video, I was a bit like, I really hope that this isn't true to real life, <laughs> because if so, I don't know if I need to contact someone or something. <laughs> um, for context for people listening, obviously the music video came out yesterday. Um, was that shot in Manchester? London. London. Okay, cool. Because there's a lot of like very cool like, yeah. artwork mm-hmm. in the background mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, for context it's got daniel like wandering around like um and also there's a love interest as well wandering around and Mm -hmm. then the ending is literally daniel basically (laughs) if anyone's seen you on netflix it was giving that i was like okay (laughs) like please let's stop (laughs) like so what was the thinking behind the um, narrative
4: of that i think um in my day-to-day life like I i think i'm quite um you know, just fun person. I like to joke around quite a lot. So I was like, I need to put that across in my in my like songs and or well, not really you can't really do that in song, right? But maybe creatively in a music video you can add something funny. And I was like, that would be pretty funny, the fact that like, you know, I follow you regardless, and I'm actually following the girl in those shots and then she she comes yeah. up and she's like, Yo, are you following me? And I'm like, ah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um but yeah, it was just something like it was just some sort of comedic element that we wanted yeah. to add um to it. Yeah. Yeah
0: and so did you have like a director and film team or was it mainly yourself that was doing putting this together
4: no so um i'm quite lucky that my cousin he's like a film director and he makes film for a living um and the guy who filmed the music video was the guy in traffic so my cousin okay uh, if you see the video, there's a bit where like there's two guys dancing in the background yeah, yeah. one of them is him okay. um and he helped filmed it and then bts and photography was another one of our cousins who was a photographer just so like cousins yeah you know? <laughs> you know um so it's like you know i was lucky in that sense but um yeah so it was good that you know it's family and you can just work together and you're yeah. like okay this works it doesn't work as opposed to you know if you're working some someone professionally and obviously hopefully i will at some point but i think at this point it just works for me better
0: no definitely and it's it's a very good position to be in to have family that is like obviously absolutely. good at doing that type yeah, of stuff as absolutely. well Um, So were there your friends like in the background on the bikes and stuff? No.
4: Oh, that was just such a cool story. We were filming a shot. Um, There's a shot where like I drop down a camera and then I pop up from behind. Mm. Um, We were doing that and then there's a bunch of guys like biking around and then they obviously disrupted the shot and then they're like, oh, sorry. sorry." And then we were like, actually, it might look cool if we get them in. So we asked them if they want to be part of the music video and they're like, yeah, cool. So that was, like, fully, like, we told them let's come in and they just were doing all that kind of stuff in the background. Uh, No, because I think that adds, like, a a bit more, like,
0: character to it Mm -hmm. as well because, obviously, apart from yourself and the love interest um, and your cousin as well, obviously, there's not really anyone else in it apart from them and that kind of adds that extra bit of, rather than just, like, you singing to the camera, there's got a bit of extra stuff going on, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. Sure. All right, cool. Um, So we're going to play it um, in a bit. Yeah. Um, I and mean, we've got like a couple minutes yep. left Um, So focusing on After Honest mm-hmm. then What's the plan like You've obviously got all this music ready mm-hmm. to release mm-hmm. Do you have like a, Is it going to be like a once every month Or every couple of months situation Or
4: So the next song hopefully hopefully, uh, January, mid January cool. um, So that's called Hunza I'm Putting the name out there mm-hmm. um, And yeah so that was also recorded a while ago um, And then the plan is Every six weeks essentially because I think, you know, it's momentum, whether this time I've properly done it. So, um, yeah, it's just doing that. And obviously, Zaz plays in Pakistan, which, by the way, I'm just going to address everyone who's listening. Yeah, um, go for it. <laughs> Who I grew up with in Pakistan is, is probably confused by the way I'm speaking. I code switch. So I've always done it since I was a kid. Um, when I used to come to the UK because I had loads of family here, I was speaking a British accent and then go back home. So if I call my friend right now I would just switch accents completely So it's just like Subconscious for me I'm not Like if I'm speaking to you And my friend is here yeah. I'll be having the same conversation But I'll be switching accents No I can tell that you're not like- it, I don't know It's weird to explain it Like um, I literally was Had a friend We were on a holiday And he was you know, a white guy and, and everyone else was brown And we were having a conversation I was literally Look at him and speak in a different accent and look at my friend same conversation like words just changing I, it's just i don't know it happens
0: <laughs> no it's really cool like and it's, i think it's part of the whole nurture thing of you know when they're like when you're young like is the best time to like learn languages mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's all like once you got older i don't know what it's probably something to do with like brain development probably, and that, but, probably.
4: that's what i've I, yeah. I what my logic is because i spent before i learned english because i didn't speak english that i got in school so i probably heard my cousin speak english in the uk so i think i it's Probably subconsciously That accent was in my head Before I even learned English So maybe sure. it's like Because I've always done it right So it's like Kids videos of me yeah. When I was like 7 years old Speaking a different accent When I'm in the UK And in Pakistan but. It
0: is a quite refreshing as well Because I think you have A lot of people Who are from um, Outside of the UK That speak english Mm. um they quite often will adopt an american accent because a lot of the time they will have learned english by watching like friends or something whereas with you like obviously you sound like i don't know like you're fresh out of london or something like so like (laughs) it's 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 very refreshing i'm very much here for it so whatever's happened there i'm glad about it um just final thing as Mm -hmm. well like Mm -hmm. obviously um your sound yeah like because i think both traffic and honest I think, like I said, like traffic is very much like kind of grassroots, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. relatively at bare production. Yeah. Um, honest, I think uh, there's there's more to it, but it's still very much like kind of like your your like kind of like soft vocals Uh over. uh Um. I don't know how to describe it But basically It's not like Coming in Smashing tambourines Like There's nothing too much to it And I think that's quite nice Like to have Is that kind of the vibe You're going for Or are you like That's just happened to be It's
4: just happened To be honest Um, Sound was To be fair Songs I recorded now Are like vocally In a bigger range So I take vocal lessons From uh, this Eastern coach He's part of Coke Studios so If you know Coke Studio in Pakistan yeah. uh, So he's taught people like Atif Aslam and all of them So I'm quite lucky that I get taught by him yeah, definitely. But I've been learning Eastern To be able to expand my range in Western And be able to add influences off that Eastern stuff Into our Western songs So a few of the new songs you'll see Like Hunza, I'm singing Urdu a little bit But I'm adding stuff here and there But yeah, I'm just experimenting And I kind of do want to show off my voice Because these songs don't really show it off too much And I know I've got a lot more to give
0: no that's cool I'm really looking forward to that because I even like in honest I didn't know, know like a few like inflections and uh-huh. stuff like that but now you've mentioned that it kind of makes sense as to
4: that's interesting. Yeah. people someone told me that but I don't notice it but that's because how will I notice it do you know what Not I mean true. like for me it's just whatever but it's cool that people are noticing that like I didn't think it was a thing but if it is my Instagram my Instagram is Daniel Umar so it's spelt uh, D-A-N-I-Y-O-A-L-O-M-A-R um, Spotify is the same Daniel Umar. Um yeah like just yeah drop your follow tiktok as though i don't really use TikTok that much i'm trying to but yeah um yeah that's where you will see pretty much everything
0: sweet cool looking forward to seeing the rest of that music in 2024 absolutely cool so we're gonna give honest a play now um before we do that thank you to everyone that has tuned in today's episode make sure you follow us on instagram at mango masala radio and other socials as well um, yeah, do you want to introduce Honest for us?
4: Absolutely, I just want to say thank you, you know, for having me. It's oh, no First ever radio interview, by the way. So this is sick. Like I, am so gassed. You can't. I can't even explain it.
0: No, oh, I um, wouldn't be able to tell as well. Like, it's been a very natural conversation. <laughs> thank
4: you. Thank you. It's very yeah. kind of you.